Welcome to the Daily Journal Podcast for September 27th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. This week we'll delve into the Environmental Protection Agency's announcement last Thursday of a rule change that revokes California's ability to maintain its own vehicle emissions regime and keep standards in place more demanding than those used by the federal government. California's permission to operate its own emissions controls dates back several decades to the passage in 1967 of a provision of the Clean Air Act. At that time, when the federal government was getting around to putting in place some legislative and regulatory curbs on air pollution, California had already been working towards that end, trying to abate the ponderous smog that marred its car-clogged cities. So the federal legislation effectively created a carve-out to let California keep doing its work, but the carve-out didn't and doesn't operate automatically. The Clean Air Act leaves it to the EPA to grant or deny California a waiver to maintain its own program, but the prescribed discretion is rather narrow, as we'll hear from our first guest, UCLA School of Law's Julia Stein. Under the statute's terms, the EPA must grant California's waiver unless the executive agency makes an affirmative showing that, more or less, California doesn't need it. It's partially on that basis that the EPA justified its decision last week, finding California had no special need to combat vehicle emissions, more so than say, any other state, but the EPA probably more centrally based its rule on an argument that another federal statute, the 1975 Environmental Policy and Conservation Act, preempts the relevant Clean Air Act section. With our second guest today, University of Oregon School of Law's Professor Greg Dotson, we'll dig pretty deeply into that preemption argument, one, as he'll describe, that hasn't really been invoked or much hinted at by prior EPAs and that subsequent congressional action seems to argue against. Also, multiple federal courts have rejected the preemption argument when presented with it. Only once previously has the EPA denied California's waiver request during the George W. Bush administration, but importantly, the new rule is not denying California a waiver, but rather rescinding one already granted in 2013. So we'll get into in just a few minutes the potential legal differences between a waiver grant and a waiver revocation. Also at play in this new rule is a bit of a paradox, namely that one policy argument for it is that it would make things easier for automakers who wouldn't need to design fleets with two different emissions regimes in mind, California's and the federal government's. But four major automakers, BMW, Ford, VW, and Honda, announced this summer their intention to continue meeting California standards, even if the Trump administration goes through with its rollback of federal levels. And that agreement moved the Department of Justice to open a probe into whether such an arrangement violates antitrust law. So our third guest today, antitrust expert Jay Himes of Labaton Sucro, will walk us through the key legal arguments about that issue. Before welcoming in our guest, though, let me first remind you that listeners of this show are very much encouraged to help fill their continuing legal education requirements with daily journal offerings. One good way to get an hour of participatory CLE credit is by listening to this show and taking a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com site to prove you tuned in. Once you've done that, an hour of credit is yours, and while you're on our site, be sure to look for the many other CLE offerings we've got. Okay, Julia Stein is the supervising attorney at the Frank Wells Environmental Law Clinic and a project director of UCLA School of Law's Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. She joins us first to discuss some background on the Clean Air Act's California carve-out, on the waiver request procedures, and on the potential legal path ahead for the challenges to the EPA's new rule. Professor, thanks for being here, and let me ask you first about the specific Clean Air Act provision that created California's exemption. So it's Section 209B of the Act, enacted in 1967, and it said any state that had its own vehicle emissions regime in place prior to a certain date in 1966 could get a waiver to continue its program. So it doesn't specifically mention California, but was it just the case that California was the only state that had such an emissions program in place? And so 
in effect, this exemption is California only? Yes, that's correct. And I think the reason for that legislative language was actually that another state, um, it was either New York or New Jersey, was in the process of adopting its own regulations at the time that the that provision of the Clean Air Act was passed. But so that state didn't, by the drop-dead period, affect its uh, standards. So that specific provision only applies to, to California. Exactly. Okay. But there is another section 177, which I think was amended a bit later on, that does say other states cannot necessarily have their, their own standards, but they can just uh, adopt California's, right? Yes, that's right. So what Section 177 allows states to do is once California has been granted a waiver for a set of standards, it can um, those states can incorporate California's standards as their own. The moment I believe there are 14 states that uh, have done that. Yeah, I think it's 13 in, in D.C. Okay. So then essentially the, the situation currently is sort of a, a binary one. There's a, a federal regime and, and California created regime that other states follow, but only two different ones. Yes. Great. And just in, in terms of the uh, the creation of a carve-out for a particular state, you know, it seems like a, a bit of an interesting provision to have in congressional legislation that uh, a law would apply to all states, but except for this one, you know, how unique should folks think of that uh, provision as, as being that 209B carve-out? Yeah, it, it is relatively unique, but it has a good reason. Um, so, you know, California was a leader and continues to be a leader in combating air pollution. And, and that was really a recognition that at the time that the Clean Air Act had was passed, California had already spent years developing its own regulations to deal with smog pollution that it was suffering from and had, you know, created some technical innovations as a result. And I think Congress recognized that California was out ahead of the rest of the country and having to deal with these issues and created the special authority for California so that it could serve and continue to serve really as a laboratory for innovation. And another piece of this that seems interesting is that justification being you know, as, as strong as you suggest, Congress seemed to, to want to make sure California would be able to continue on battling you know, emissions and smog in, within its borders. You know, it could have created that carve out just um, to have effect based on the law and, and nothing else, right? But the additional step of of working in the executive branch to grant it, you know, sort of oversight as to whether or not California would get to avail itself of that legislation. That seems like an interesting extra step. Is that, you know, how unique is, is that? Or is that just a fairly typical delegation of oversight to administrative agencies that are closer to the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a mechanism that we see um, relatively consistently across a number of statutes and a number of other environmental statutes have the same kind of setup where authority is delegated to states to set their own standards, but the federal government has review power. In this case, I think California actually has much stronger uh, authority. You know, there's a real presumption written into Section 209 that California would be granted the right to set its own regulations unless some very unusual circumstances occur. That's what I wanted to, to reference also next is the, the the burdens here seems to be on the EPA to show that California does not need the waiver. Usually when folks might think of a waiver, they might consider the dynamic that there is one regime, one set of regulations, and an individual party comes and sort of pleads a case saying, you know, please, uh, we would like to be 
exempt from this regime. But the way that this waiver process is set up, you know, it, it's, it seems to suggest EPA will grant this waiver unless it shows a makes a showing of certain reasons why it doesn't have to. So it seems the burden is on the EPA, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, that's something that's borne out as well in the regulatory history with this rule. That language, Section 209, was strengthened in amendments in 1977. And we see regulatory rulemakings throughout the 70s and 80s recognizing that it's really the burden of EPA to show that California has in some way acted unreasonably or doesn't need its waiver. And it's supposed to give great deference to California's own analysis of its need for the regulations and its technical analysis of those regulations as well. In terms of just the the timing of the granting of these waivers, it's, it's not a one-time thing that was granted once and exists forever. So it, it recurs. A, I take it a waiver lasts for a certain period of time and then expires and it must be reapplied for. So I guess uh, how how long do these waivers tend to last? How many have there been, if you know, uh, just in terms of the one currently that exists? How long is, is that set to run for? Yeah, sure. So there have been scores of waivers since the Clean Act, Air Act was adopted in um, 1970. And you know, typically what happens is that a waiver request is for a package of regulations. And once California needs a new set of regulations to deal with other issues, it then goes back to EPA and asks for another waiver to deal with those new issues. So in this case, you know, we have emission standards for a set of model years of cars, and it covers model years up through 2025. So once the, that set of model years is passed, there will need to be another set of regulations that regulate model years of cars that come in the future. And California would need to seek a new waiver from EPA to address emissions from those kinds of cars. And then EPA would, again, have the right to review that package through the 209 process. We've mentioned that the, the legislation seems to essentially sort of direct the EPA to almost always grant these waivers unless it finds certain things that we'll, we'll get, get into in a second. But there was at least, I think, one instance where a waiver was denied during uh, George W. Bush's administration. Is that correct? Yeah, so that was the first instance of waiver denial. And, you know, and that sort of kicked off the saga that we're we're living through right now. So this has been something that's going on for now over a decade, but had to do with regulations for, again, um, tailpipe emission standards. And the Bush administration there denied that waiver. Um, the Obama administration came in shortly thereafter and reopened that request and reevaluated it and determined that it would grant the waiver. The denial of granting a waiver, I mean, that is something different than what the current administration is proposing, the, the revocation of the waiver. So uh, the, no waiver has been revoked then. Yes. Yeah. So this would be the first time in the entire 50-year history of the Clean Air Act where a waiver has been revoked. And and what's interesting about that is that there's really no revocation authority anywhere in the Clean Air Act. So what 209 does is, like you say, it, it sets out the criteria that EPA can consider when a waiver request has been made. So before the fact, um, and then EPA considers those criteria when it decides whether to grant or deny a waiver request. It doesn't, however, create any authority for the agency to come back years after the fact and reassess a waiver that it's already granted. Is the argument likely to be that the sort of power to grant or the power to deny to grant or refuse to grant um, it sort of entails the right to revoke as well, do you think? 
Yeah, so that's the the rationale that was laid out in the proposed rule. And I haven't yet, they've released the final rule this morning. I haven't combed all the way through it yet. But my expectation is that, again, the administration will rely on what it calls its inherent authority under the Clean Air Act to revoke the waiver. What's interesting about that, though, is that in other contexts, courts haven't necessarily recognized any kind of inherent authority where a statute is silent like this. And here we don't have strong legislative history that suggests that there is any such authority. And, you know, obviously in in the 50 years in which the the Clean Air Act has been um, in effect, we've never seen this kind of authority ever be utilized. So I think the administration finds itself in kind of a unique position with maybe an uphill battle to try to claim that it does have that kind of authority. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in certain statutes, you might see sort of a catch-all, a residual pr- provision providing some discretionary authority, but that doesn't really seem to exist in, in 209. It's, it's the, the things we've been talking about, that the EPA shall issue a uh, waiver unless certain things are found, and that's about the long and short of it. Exactly. Okay. And then in terms of what the EPA would need to show to justify just denying, granting a waiver, one of those is if the EPA finds California standards are not as high as the federal standards, that one is not relevant at the moment, right? That's correct. No one's claiming that. (laughs) Sure. Um, (laughs) And so the other one that seems to maybe provide the most wiggle room for the administration is that, I think this was the one that was used when George W. Bush administration denied a waiver was that if the EPA finds California does not need the waiver for compelling or extraordinary conditions within the state, like I suppose, you know, battling smog or or climate change and the like, then it could deny granting the waiver. Of course, that doesn't really speak to revocation, but tell me a bit more about that. Do you think that's the area the administration might lean on here? Sure. Yeah, that certainly does need to be the focus, both in the proposed rule and in the the statements that the administration has released this morning. The argument they're um, relying on is essentially that climate change is a global problem. And as a result, California doesn't stand to suffer any more than anybody else. And so there are no compelling and extraordinary conditions that would uh, necessitate California having its own regulations in this space. And I think there are a couple of issues with that that line of thinking in this particular case, one of which is that there is evidence out there in the administrative record and in the, the record for the waiver grant action back in 2013 that demonstrates that California actually does uh, stand to, to suffer some unique impacts as a result of climate change just because of its geographic positioning and its climate. So it will actually um, suffer impacts that are unique and different uh, and as a result, you know, can claim that it does have compelling and extraordinary conditions in the area of climate change. But I think something that also maybe gets overlooked a little bit is that this waiver package also covers the ZEV mandate, which is really a program that has existed in some shape or form since the 1990s and was put into effect to address smog pollution. And that's exactly the type of pollution that has always been considered a compelling and extraordinary condition that gives California the right to have a waiver for its own regulations. It's the reason why we have 
waiver authority for California written into the Clean Air Act in the first place. You know, even the administration in its own announcement today pointed out that smog pollution in California is still bad. So California is still experiencing that compelling and extraordinary condition. And the administration is now making a move to take away regulations that California would use to combat that pollution. That uh, ZEV mandate you references first of the zero emissiency vehicle uh, regime that California has created. Yes. Just in terms of, so we referenced that the the government is really the one, the U.S., the EPA is the one that bears the burden of showing California doesn't need it, that these um, extraordinary and compelling conditions don't apply. Is there any suggestion as to what sort of standard of proof the EPA would be held to to, to make that showing? Yeah, so I think they would need to show that there's substantial evidence that California doesn't need its standards. You know, there's a really high burden here. There's a strong presumption that the evidence that California has presented and its opinion about whether or not it needs its regulations is what EPA is supposed to rely on in making this determination. And California has produced reams of evidence showing that it needs these regulations. So the agency really has to point to something substantial to explain why California's assessment is incorrect, and it really hasn't done that here. And I suppose overall, you would suggest that uh, the overall footing of their legal arguments is, is sort of shaky. There's another statute that I believe is referenced to a federal law referring to fuel standards that is suggested to, to preempt California's regime. Is that um, a separate argument, too? Yeah, so that's really a separate basis that the administration is relying on. And that this is a joint rulemaking by uh, NHTSA, the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration, and EPA. NHTSA is the federal agency that regulates fuel economy of cars. And so the argument there is that even though these standards, California standards, are not fuel economy standards, they're emissions standards, because one way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from your car is to make it more fuel efficient, that bleeds into an area that's regulated by the federal government, by NHTSA. And so this federal statute, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, EPCA, preempts California's ability to regulate in this space. And just uh, quickly touching on you know, the, the policy arguments here, there's, there's a lot of them, and that, those probably will become, to a large extent, the focus of the, the coverage of this action, I imagine. But just quickly, you know, the two core claims from the administration seem, one, that if you have cars that um, have lower fuel standards to meet, they can be produced more cheaply, and that would mean more folks would buy them, creating more jobs, which I suppose the logic of that at least flows, although there are definitely counterarguments to it. And also there's a claim that these cars would be safer with lower fuel economy. That one doesn't make as much sense to me. Do you want to know what that claim is getting at? Yeah. So that claim, at least in the proposed rule, is based on something called a rebound effect. And the idea there is that if cars are more fuel efficient, people will drive them more because they, they get better mileage per gallon. And that in turn will increase the number of traffic accidents people get into. And what's interesting about that argument is that it really hasn't held up. Even the government's own analysis showed that with this rollback, uh, there would be more traffic fatalities, not fewer. In terms of, you know, from your perspective as a environmental practitioner and, and, and professor, you know, the view of uh, the current Supreme Court hearing this case, you know, even as we've discussed the arguments on the legal side might not be that strong for the administration. It seems like um, the administration has had some sympathy with, with the court. I mean, do you think that uh, the government could be relying on a relatively sympathetic court here to give it, you know, read it pretty broad discretion? 
Well, I, I certainly think that that's what they're hoping for. Um, and that the rationale may be for separating these two actions out. So, you know, there was at one time this waiver revocation portion of the action was going to be part of a bigger rule that also included a rollback of federal fuel economy and tailpipe emission standards. And now those two things have been separated and the administration is moving forward with revoking California's waiver first. And I think perhaps part of the rationale there from the administration's perspective, is to try to move the the litigation process forward as quickly as possible uh, in the hopes that they might get it to the Supreme Court before the 2020 election. I think that's still a relatively aggressive litigation timeframe, but it's always possible. But I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, even though we have some more conservative justices on the court now, when you look at some of their past court opinions, um, when they sat in the circuit courts, you know, you're, you're really seeing some skepticism about deferring to agency actions that aren't well supported. So I think if you're looking at their past precedent, you know, to be consistent with their own prior rulings, I think they would really have to have to take a hard look at this action and and assess whether they truly believe the government has supported itself here. You also assume that uh, conservative justices on the whole are sort of more known to be sympathetic to states wanting to implement their own, you know, local, uh, closer to the people governments that aren't, you know, uh, interrupted by the government from Washington. So that would seem to also cut potentially against the administration. Yeah, and you know, in this particular case, we see a long-standing authority for a state written into the statute. So I think the administration has a little bit of an uphill battle there to to try and fight against that presumption. Well, last thing, even if the revocation were to take effect and say it was approved of by the court or just while well, it was pending, it was in effect. California does have an agreement with I think four very large automakers: Ford, BMW. Volkswagen among them to essentially keep, they agreed to meet California's standards um, for the time being. I suppose if California standards go away, would that agreement be impacted? Could it still have effect? Yeah, so that agreement was really entered into in anticipation of the very litigation that we're now going to see begin. And, you know, the rationale there, I think, from the automaker's perspective is that this is bad for business. Um, They're entering now a period of regulatory uncertainty as this litigation resolves. And they're also facing a market that where consumers are demanding greener cars and more fuel efficient cars. So it's best for their business to continue to move forward and make progress on these standards. And that's something that you saw representatives of the auto industry even coming and saying to Congress earlier this summer and, you know, explaining that this wasn't the kind of regulatory action that they were hoping the administration was going to take. So, you know, I think there's a real recognition there that they want to continue to make progress and stave off the kind of regulatory uncertainty that this litigation will create. Uh, Professor Julia Stein, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks. Before hearing from our next guest, let me bring one other quick reminder to your attention. Most of you are probably aware our verdicts and settlements section issues every Friday and details a broad array of trial court level dispositions, verdicts, settlements, arbitration awards, summary judgments, 
we do that to keep you abreast of what sorts of suits are being filed, what sorts of suits are prevailing, and what those suits are worth to help attorney readers evaluate matters they're working on. But if you've got a result you'd like us to share with the whole DJ subscriber base, we'd love to publish it. You can submit your case at www.dailyjournal.com forward slash V and S. It's uh, spelled out, no ampersand. Okay, so as you just heard, the EPA final rule was being released around the time Professor Stein and I were speaking, but now it's been out for a few days and we've got a clearer sense of just what its asserted legal grounding is. The government appears to think the preemption argument that the 1975 EPCA essentially rescinds the carve out the Clean Air Act created eight years earlier. Our next guest has done a tremendous amount of research on just this question over the past year or so since the administration began sending out signals this move might be coming. He's Professor Greg Dotson of University of Oregon School of Law. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. I'm happy to join you. Okay, so, so zooming in centrally here on the preemption argument, which seems to be the one the EPA is, is leaning on most heavily in its a f- final rule. You, you told me before that there's at least a, a superficial logic, some a patina of persuasiveness to this uh, this argument that the subsequent legislation, the EPCA, preempts the Clean Air Act's provisions that, that gave California that sort of carve-out. Uh, tell me a bit about, I guess, that, uh, that patina of persuasiveness. Well, I think that what the administration is attempting to do in this rule is focus on 50 words uh, that were enacted in 1975 as part of the Energy Policy and Conservation Act. And those 50 words are it's a pre- preemptive clause, and it essentially says that when you have a fuel economy standard in effect then no state or local government has the authority to adopt or enforce a law that relates to those fuel economy standards. And so the sort of the, you know, the patina of it is the, the, the superficial logic would be that because there is a relationship in that cars that emit less greenhouse gas emissions get better fuel economy, uh, therefore they relate to fuel economy and therefore those regulations are preempted. That's their argument. And I think it's uh, I think it's superficial, and I think it for that I think that they have to ignore a lot of a lot of things to get there. Sure. And let's dive into to some of those things that have to be overlooked to to fully buy that preemption argument. One is is looking a little bit deeper into the 1975 EPCA Act itself, and then its um, purpose and legislative history behind it, and discussions had at the time. I guess tell me a bit about that and how that bears onto the discussion. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, uh, the the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, people refer to it as EPCA. It really came about as a result of the oil embargo uh, that happened in the, from the Mid East in the in 1973 and 1974. And at that time, the U.S. was undergoing shortages of oil that it had had never um, previously had to endure. And this was the legislative response to that problem. And what it sought to do was to significantly reduce the amount of oil that needed to be imported into the United States. President Ford had established this goal of reducing oil imports by 2 million barrels per day, and EPCA put in place a lot of policies to help achieve that, everything from um, new authority to make um, appliances more efficient, provisions that created an international system of oil sharing, which has led to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then most relevant to this issue, it created a mandatory fuel economy program. What that did was it it required automakers to, uh, on a fleet-wide average basis, 
to ensure that they were increasing the, the fuel economy vehicles of their vehicles over time. The motivation behind it had to do with uh, increasing the economic resilience of the country to energy shortages. It had to do with conserving our natural resources um, in a way that was that was would provide for more sustainable utilization over time. What it did not do was and was not intended to do was to address issues of air quality or to address climate change. And so the nation was embarked on an effort to solve um, air pollution problems at the same time. They had just passed the 1970 Clean Air Act. There had been legislation um, in the years right around right around the 1975 Act, including a major reauthorization of the Clean Air Act in 1977. So EPCO was not intended to interfere with the efforts to protect public health and the environment. And you can see that in the, the structure of the Act, in which they carefully um, provided that if in achieving an emission standard, it was necessary to adjust the goals for fuel economy, the law provided for that. So in that way, having and, and the reason for that was at the time, and there was concern in Congress that essentially having to comply with a an emission standard in your car and for your cars and trucks could diminish the amount of um, increased fuel efficiency that could be achieved, and that just had to do with the technology that was available, and so they wanted to make sure that rather than rather than sacrificing air quality for the purposes of fuel economy. They allowed for fuel economy to be adjusted based upon goals to achieve public health and uh, to protect public health and the environment. So um, that's the background of it. And what we see of its implementation was very much recognized that from the very first rulemaking under EPCA, the uh, Department of Transportation uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is a subpart of Department of Transportation, was charged with implementing the law. From the very first rulemaking, they looked at what the effects of cal- meeting California emission standards might be on fuel economy, and they would simply adjust the standards as necessary to accommodate that. We, we as a practical matter, they continued to do that um, up through model year 2011. So that was a consistent practice during the implementation of the law. Sometimes you would sometimes you would see it explicitly talked about how they consider it. They used a variety of legal rationales. Sometimes it would happen in the background, but it happened for many decades. So then beginning in model year 2012, there was there was actually a cooperative approach with California. And so this whole issue of of um whether or not there was conflict between the various standards was, was ameliorated because they were all done in coordination from model year 2012 through model year 2025. So during the, during the implementation of it, um, the early implementation of EPCA, we saw a lot of evidence that my research, you know, found in, in the federal rec, in the federal rulemaking record, lots of examples of, um, of where they considered California, the effects of California emission standards on fuel economy. And, you know, examples where, for example, um, the implementation of those state standards resulted in almost a 30% reduction in fuel efficiency in a specific vehicle. And yet NHTSA never said, therefore, California is preempted. 
Uh, instead, they simply modified it. So we, we have a long implementation where NHTSA recognized that there were different purposes for the laws. One had to do with increasing efficiency over time to address the nation's oil dependence, and that was valued less, frankly, than the more important goal of protecting public health and the environment. That, as you've described, would undercut the EPA's logic, which in, you know, in large part seems to be that, okay, that these are not two separate regulatory type actions, that if you're regulating emissions, in effect, you are just almost, it's almost the same as if you were regulating fuel economy, fuel efficiency, because the one will cause the other to happen. But as you describe it, it's, they sound like these have been described and, and, and understood to be two sort of separate separate ideas. So the agencies rely on um, a, a number of Supreme Court cases in, in, involving um, ERISA, and one of the one of the the um, holdings from those case from the case California Division of Labor Standards Enforcement versus Dillingham discusses how what the courts have to look to is the objectives of the statute as guide as a guide to the scope of the state law that Congress understood would survive after preemption. And here that issue about one law seeking to address oil dependence from an economic perspective and one law seeking to protect public health and environment and the fact that we have multiple decades of implementation allowing those efforts to protect, to protect public health and the environment to remain, I think is a pretty good indication that what Congress really wanted here was a, um, they expected that this, that the state laws to protect public health and the environment would survive the preemption. There's also some language, and, and maybe this isn't exactly on sort of all fours with what's happening here, but the you know, very well-known environmental case, the Massachusetts First EPA from about 12 years ago. I think there's also some language in there along similar lines that uh, the Clean Air Act provision at issue here in the EPCA, the EPCA provision can coexist that uh, fuel efficiency regulation and emissions pollution, air pollution regulation um, are sort of two different different things, even if they do overlap to some extent. Is that the case? I think that's right. Uh, Massachusetts versus EPA made it very clear that you can have two federal statutes attempting to achieve two two goals, and although they may have overlapping effects in implementation, uh, that doesn't relieve either either federal agency of its duties to comply with the law. I, just, I think it just punctuates the idea that the the goals of EPCA and the goals of the Clean Air Act are not identical. A counterargument, I imagine, or I guess it was an, an argument. Uh, brought forward by the government that I could foresee would be something along the lines of, okay, that's fine. Even if the agencies have not until this point over several decades regarded um, EPCA to displace the the Clean Air Act uh, section, we have a new president, we have a new uh, head of the EPA and the DOT, and we do. We view these things differently. I mean, what's the counterargument to that? Well, I think the, uh, the important thing to remember here, of course, is that agencies cannot uh, undertake actions that they can't. They don't have authority that Congress hasn't given them. And uh, in in this case, they would like they sort of put forward this idea that Congress acted in 1975 and then they acted in 2007, and that's the entire history. And therefore, we know that um, they can interpret it as they have suggested. The actual legislative and statutory history, though, is is broader than what they portray. 
as you look more comprehensively at it, you see all kinds of evidence that Congress has actually consistently supported California's authority to set its own emission standards. You see it in a very in a um, useful but general way during the Clean Air Act amendments of 1977, in which they're, they they expanded and reinforced state tailpipe authority. The goal there was to make sure that California had the broadest possible discretion in implementing in statute. But then you see some more specific statutory evidence. And this is sometimes you'll have uh, textualists who will say, we don't care about legislative history. We think that what members of Congress see on the floor is irrelevant. We think that committee reports are not useful. We think that conference reports from bills, uh, those are not necessarily signed on to by the institution as a whole, and we shouldn't be giving those weight. But there is a, another type of evidence, which people refer to as statutory history. And, you know, uh, Justice Scalia has written about that, and he talked about how um, even to the staunchest textualist, statutory evidence is, statutory history is, is relevant to interpretation. And what, and what statutory history is, it's, it's the, the statutes actually repealed or amended by statute under consideration, and they can be understood as being approved by Congress as a whole. So when you start to, to look for that kind of evidence, you can see that Congress has been very supportive of and consistently supportive of California's authority. So in 1990, California first established its zero emission vehicle program. And um, later that year, Congress enacted the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990. In the 1990 Clean Air Act Amendments, Congress specifically recognized California's zero emission vehicle program. And it told EPA that in setting up a new clean energy fueling program for non-attainment areas, they should figure out a crediting system that relies on and is as close as possible to what California has done with its zero emission vehicle program. For EPA and and DOT to tell us now that the zero emission vehicle program was actually preempted in 1975, when in 1990 we see evidence of Congress citing it with approval and allowing it to run in parallel operation with federal programs in 1990. I think that severely undercut their argument. Furthermore, more, um, the Energy Policy Act of 1992 included numerous provisions to encourage states to develop vehicles to support uh, electric vehicles, uh, going so far as to offer incentives for states to develop any program that could promote electric vehicles, whether they're mandatory or voluntary. And again, how do you reach the conclusion that the states were preempted from having these programs when Congress is trying to actively incentivize the creation of them in 1992. In um, the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, uh, there's two strong examples. One is a savings clause designed to protect California's authority from any unintended arguments of preemption. And there is a program much like the 1990 provision that says uh, we want to do, we want federal fleets to be a cleaner portion of the vehicles that are on the road. And so a new program was established in which EPA was directed to look at all of the greenhouse gas standards that would be applicable and use the most stringent ones to determine how uh, federal purchasing of vehicles. Well, if there was only one standard, as the administration is now suggesting, that provision would make no sense whatsoever. It only makes sense 
because there was a state standard. And when you look at the legislative history around that provision, you see that the chairman of the committee said the purpose of this is to require the federal fleet to comply with California standard. The testimony of the legislative hearing on that provision, the witnesses said this is about federal, this is about allowing the requiring the federal government to achieve California state standards for greenhouse gases. The press reported on it as being about expanding the use of California standards. There's really no doubt that that's what that program was about. And so I think you look at all of these, this evidence and you just see that far from trying to preempt California, they've been supporting it. If you go into 2015, you find the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. Congress decided to do a provision to facilitate the manufacturing of low-volume replica vehicles. So this is if you would like to go buy a, a, a newly manufactured 1967 Mustang. Well, what are the emissions, what are the standards that it must comply with? And Congress decided to facilitate it by saying you don't have to comply with uh, fuel economy standards under EPCA. You don't have to comply with the safety standards promulgated by NHTSA. But what you do have to comply with are either EPA or California emission standards. And at that time, for five years, there had already been greenhouse gas standards adopted by both entities. So Congress had the option of, um, at that point, of saying these manufacturers don't have to comply with greenhouse gas standards, and they didn't do that. So I, th- I think there's a lot of evidence, um, and I just think all of that evidence combined makes it untenable to believe that that um, state standards were preempted in 1975. Well, that's one of it sounds like, as you describe it, California has the better end of this argument, and that seems to largely be the consensus among coverage of this issue in this now pending case. Do you think that will sort of be enough for California to hold its own here and maintain the Clean Air Act waiver? Or do you think that maybe like the administration is hoping for, it'll get some sympathetic ears at the Supreme Court and uh, the rule will actually uh, take effect? I think I would probably not be very wise to predict what the Supreme Court will do given its current makeup. But I think that uh, I think if they look at the law and they look at the facts, then then the waiver will be upheld and state standards will not be preempted. Okay. I will. Greg Dotson from the University of Oregon School of Law. Thanks very much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. All right. Happy to join you. With our final guest this week, we'll throw on a different legal lens through which to look at California's emissions regime, that being antitrust. The state agreed this summer with several major automakers that the manufacturers would maintain compliance with California's program, even if federal rollbacks came. Now, the DOJ is looking at whether such an agreement violates antitrust law. Jay Himes is a partner with Labaton Sucro and was previously the antitrust bureau chief with New York's attorney general. He's been at the center of some extremely high-profile antitrust matters, including one in the early 2000s involving Microsoft. Jay, welcome to the program. And first, at the outset, maybe let's briefly make sure we're on the same page with exactly the agreement we're talking about. So we have California and four automakers earlier in the summer agreed that even if the federal government were to roll back federal emissions controls, that those four automakers would still live up to California's more stringent regime. Um, Of course, now California's ability to set its own emissions limits is sort of um, up in the air with the EPA rulebook. 
for the moment, let's maybe set that aside. Um, is that how you understand the agreement here that uh, these four very substantial automakers are saying, you know, not one of us will take advantage of those relaxed federal rules and maybe get a competitive advantage over one another? Is that uh, how you understand it as well? Well, I, I mean, that's what I've read in the press. Okay. I, I, obviously, I've never seen the agreement uh, or I haven't looked for it if it's available, but I understand the reports about it. Yeah. Same agreement. I mean, so just going from that understanding of it, if antitrust enforcement is about preventing companies from preventing them from agreeing to not compete on certain things, you know, that agreement, I suppose, sounds like an agreement not to compete in a certain manner, not to take advantage of a re- regulatory rollback that would let companies maybe make cheaper, dirtier cars. So at least superficially, you know, it sounds like potentially it gets into uh, muddy antitrust waters, right? Well, I don't think you can reach that conclusion so simply. First of all, uh, it, I mean, it is an agreement made with the state of California, and that implicates um, a state action concept, for one thing, which is recognized by the Supreme Court and insulates conduct that is directed by the state from antitrust scrutiny. And there's a whole body of law about the state action doctrine. So that's the first hurdle that an antitrust analysis, I think, would probably ask about. In addition, there, you know, there is an immunity for collective action designed to achieve legislative or even regulatory uh, action. And that's called the Norr-Pennington Doctrine. You've probably heard of that. Willingness of these companies to accept emissions levels that are are less than the national level in, 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 in California is arguably protected under the Norr-Pennington Doctrine, too, even though it's undertaken collectively. If you get past that, then you have to think a little harder about why you would apply antitrust law under circumstances like this. And that really requires you to think about what antitrust law is trying to do. You, you've got a circumstance here that involves what economists call a negative externality. And that's a fancy word that sometimes is simplified to spillover effect. A spillover effect can either be good or bad, but what it means is that there are third parties who are affected by a transaction between a buyer and a seller. You you can think of it as collateral benefit or collateral damage. Where we're talking about pollution, it's collateral damage. Uh, The society and all the people that live in the society are injured by the spillover of the pollution. And an agreement like this is designed to have the manufacturers internalize the costs that are otherwise being borne by the society at large. And what they do is obviously have to spend more money to restrict the emissions that are coming out of the cars. So the cars will cost more money because the 
external effects, the spillover, are now being absorbed into the price that the user pays. And that's a good thing. Uh, certainly for negative externalities, it's better, unless the society decides at large that it wants to bear these costs, it's better to make the cost user-specific and encourage the companies to take the steps that that need to be taken to make the emissions controls better, even though it costs more money and the users of the cars will pay more. But that's, you know, getting society away from paying the bill of it, you know, that car users otherwise uh, ought to be paying. That's a good thing. Um, now, some externalities can't be internalized that way. National defense, for example, is something that, you know, everybody gets the benefit of, and we pay for it by, um, you know, the operations of the government. But, uh, I mean, this is something that if you can develop better emissions controls to reduce the spillover, that's a good thing. And, and, and before antitrust gets in the way, you ought to look very carefully at that. I had read uh, in some of the reporting uh, about this agreement, I think, in the, in the Wall Street Journal, they had referenced that um, sort of even in context, as you're describing, maybe agreements that uh, get at a, a pernicious negative externality and an agreement that sort of overall is contributing to a public good, that potentially still anti-competitive behavior has been struck down in those contexts, even where the behavior of the agreements is towards a collective good. Do you know if that uh, is the case? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of an example that looks like that, and off the top of my head, I really can't. I mean, there, there, it certainly is fair that good intentions, you know, do not necessarily insulate collective action. I, I, I would certainly agree with that. You know, an example of that is some years back. Some, some clothing designers, if I recall exactly the facts, I don't really, decided that there was piracy going on in the industry. Designs were being copied illegally and then being sold at discount prices. And um, if there, there was, the, the designers got together and agreed not to do business with stores that were buying um, discount fashions from uh, pirates. And, you know, it's true we like to have copyrights, copyright law enforced, and designs uh, of fashions can be copyrighted under some circumstances, so it's a positive good. Um, but the FTC sued and the Supreme Court held that's right. You can't engage in self-help just because you have good intentions for doing it. Same idea with trial lawyers in the District of Columbia who um, were being paid very low wages to do criminal defense, and they decided essentially to go on strike uh, for higher wages. Um, and the Supreme Court uh, also held that that was uh, illegal despite the good intentions. They wanted to be paid more to give criminal defendants better representation. And, you know, the decision there was that that's really a decision society has to bear. So, yeah, you know, I think there may be circumstances like that. If you're, however, talking about adopting standards to limit a negative externality, a spillover, I don't have a case in my head, but maybe there is something. I'd still want to think about it. 
I'd like to see that that argument brief better because particularly in, in when you're talking about environmental pollution, you need to be careful that you don't misapply antitrust law in a way that um, is perverse, frankly. I don't know to, to what extent it might matter the motivations behind the Department of Justice antitrust probe. It, it certainly comes very quickly on the on the heels of this agreement, and it comes within the context of the administration trying to roll back the overall greenhouse gas emissions regime as it relates to, to vehicles. It also you know, sort of comes in the context of the administration targeting the state of California, um, trying to revoke its ability to um, set standards higher than than the federal regime that was sort of put into law in the Clean Air Act. You know, to any extent, if the motivations of the Department of Justice are sort of directed by the the president and, and related to these sort of other um, fights he's having with the state of California, does that have any bearing on the eventual consideration of uh, by the courts of, of the antitrust uh, case? Well, y- you know, in in theory, the antitrust case ought to be decided on the merits. Uh, you know, and there was there was talk like this when the antitrust division challenged the ATT Time Warner merger. You know, was that really just being directed uh, by the president because um, he, you know he doesn't like the media coverage that's coming out of Time Warner? Um, the the district judge decided he wasn't going to make that an issue in the case. Uh, was not going to let uh, that sort of our, it was not going to accept that as a defense, basically, to the enforcement action, and tried the case on the merits. Um, in theory, you know, a, an antitrust case like this ought to be tried on the merits too. But I think that um, there, I, I, I'm reminded of a comment by a Supreme Court justice once who said, "We can't ignore." Uh, as judges, what we know uh, as in men to be true, it doesn't play so well in a, a uh, environment today, uh, but it did 50 or 60 years ago. And, um, you know, there comes a point where it strains credulity uh, to think that uh, this, is, this, this kind of case were to be brought is a uh, genuine effort to enforce the antitrust laws and doesn't have as some other some other purpose in mind simply to punish California, frankly, for um, uh, resistance to the policies of the president. So I, I, that's a sort of a principled answer would be, no, it shouldn't matter at all. I think in the real world, it might very well matter. Uh, another real world development, is, as we mentioned, the EPA has put out a final rule saying that it has revoked California's ability to set its own emission standards. To the extent that you know, does the agreement between the automakers and, and the state cement to any extent dependent on the fact that the state retains its ability to set its own emission standards? So if California has to, after the CPA final rule is put into place and say... I don't know the technical answer to that, um, you know, whether the dominoes fall or not, although I guess the rescission action is being challenged right now by California in the courts. Isn't that correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's um, in courts already. Yeah. So, as I said, I don't know whether uh, if that action is valid, then the agreement is conditioned on that or not. I just don't don't know the details well enough to be able to comment on that. Sorry. And then, I guess just one last one, you know, from your vantage point, you've dealt with some very high-profile antitrust matters. Do you, you have 
any sort of prediction as to how this one you know might play out? Do you think it's, it's sort of a preliminary sound and fury from the Department of Justice that might not amount to much? Or do you think this is really going to become a, a thing that uh, is seen to the finish? Well, you know, the the issue on the rescission of the existing, you know, grandfather out, if you will, matters, I suppose. And I don't know much about what that case, I, I don't know, I don't know what the exact allegations are there. I assume it's got something to do with whether proper administrative procedures were applied to deal with that, but I don't know the, the merits of it. And, and it, as I said, it could affect the agreement with uh, the four automakers. But if if one assumes that the agreement exists on a standalone basis, independent of that other action, I, I think it will be a very hard case to sustain for the administration. Were the administration, in other words, were the administration to sue, uh, I think they would lose. You no, know, and I said. I, it, Starting out, that you've got to get over a state action uh, argument, you've got to get over a North Pennington argument, and then you get to the question of how are you going to analyze this as a uh, antitrust matter. I think it's pretty hard to get out from under the state action argument as as long as California has the authority to to set emissions levels below the national standard. Well, Jay Hines, thanks very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Okay. Good luck. Okay, that is our show for September 27th, 2019. Hope you enjoyed tuning in. Thanks to all of my guests, Julia Stein, Greg Dotson, and Jay Himes. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Heinrich Nielsen. Thank you, of course, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one participatory hour of CLE credit is available to you for having listened to the show. Just go to dailyjournal.com to find it. Claiming that credit and tendering the nominal fee associated with it helps us to continue to put the show outside of our usual paywall. So do appreciate it. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.